The Neurodivergent Woman podcast acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respect to Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. Hello, this is the Neurodivergent Woman podcast. Hi, I'm Monique Mitchelson and I'm a clinical psychologist. And I'm Michelle Livock, and I'm a clinical neuropsychologist. Michelle and I met at work and bonded over a shared love of feminism and yoga. We both saw the need to provide a free resource to adult neurodivergent women. And so the Neurodivergent Woman podcast was born. Michelle is neurotypical. And Monique is neurodivergent. And we bring our clinical expertise and lived experience to the topics we explore. This is a podcast where we center and showcase neurodivergent women from all walks of life. Covering autism to ADHD and everything in between, we aim to educate and inspire women who think differently. On this week's episode, we are talking with Cynthia Spleen about self-expression, plus a bunch of other stuff. Cynthia, aka Plastic Messiah, is a neuroqueer Mauritian creative based in Nam. They identify as an autistic and non-binary person and have been drawing obsessively since they first picked up a pencil. Cynthia paints, makes music and comics, tattoos, writes and performs. They love making characters and storytelling most of all. This is inspired by inner worlds, fantasy, the cursed and haunted, 80s aesthetics, ancient archives archetypes, fashion, colour, pop culture, and transmuting trauma through art and humour. So, Cynthia, I'm a big fan of yours from TikTok, actually. So I first found you when I was going through my own diagnosis journey and I was scrolling through and I saw this fabulous person with amazing fashion and self-expression. And so, yeah, we really wanted to get you onto the podcast today to have a chat about what does neurodivergence mean to you? Like, what does that term mean for you? I have honestly been turning around this question ever since I, uh, yeah, read it in the emails. I was just like, it's actually quite difficult to answer this now for some reason. (laughs) What it's meant to me has changed in different parts uh, over the years the more I've kind of learned about the origins of autism, like in terms of it as a diagnosis, thinking about neurodivergence and neurotypical as like ideologies more so than like things that are true necessarily. Uh, And yeah, and I also do kind of feel like people use the term as a placeholder sometimes to kind of dilute specificity in terms of like just not saying autism so I don't know (laughs) I don't know how I feel about the term at the moment I think I generally try to be more specific I think uh, when I'm describing myself yeah not necessarily say neurodivergent anymore and rather be like autistic slash ADHD I think a lot of different things about it (laughs) at the moment yeah it's it is a really interesting one, and we have heard from guests before, um, particularly uh, we talked to Clem Bastow, and they were saying a similar thing to you, Cynthia, where the term neurodivergence sometimes can be used almost like as a more palatable way of saying autistic. And, you know, as far as we're making these kind of really big strides around understanding and destigmatizing things like autism, there still is that hangover that it's like, oh, you can't say autistic. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I guess just kind of leading on from that, um, when we booked you, Cynthia, I had a a look through your amazing website um, and I loved, love, love, loved your description of yourself. It made me smile so much. Um, And if it's okay with you, I'd love to just read out a little excerpt of it. I think it's fantastic. Um, So you describe yourself as a non-binary autismo, Baroque drag demon, cartoon lesbian, asopian parable. Um, Phenomenal. Um, And, and, you know, the reason I wanted to just sort of pull that out a little bit is 
We've just heard a bit about how you conceptualize neurodivergence and kind of thoughts around that and specificity versus generalization. And I'd really love to hear about how you think about or conceptualize identity more broadly, because it seems like there's so many identifiers, I guess, that you use so articulately to describe yourself. I don't know. There was one part of me that's kind of uh, resistant to labeling myself as well, where it's kind of like, no, you are a malleable, amorphous blob that is changing (laughs) moment to moment. Um, How can you possibly label yourself? In any way, uh, because I would insinuate absolutes that are illusory and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so there's that part of me. But then there's also the part of me, I think, which is the quite autistic part of me that really wants those labels as like just anchor points to be like, and also like it's a shorthand, you know, rather than trying to explain to someone all this exposition about yourself and how you think about things and all of this, it is just like a very optimized way to get across how you perceive of yourself. <laughs> I, I feel like there's like the um, identity that is sort of created for others to consume or it's like its functionality is for others. For instance, that's kind of how I feel in regards to like gender identity, like the term non-binary, for instance, it feels very like, not quite there as to what how I feel about my gender but at the same time language is very limiting and this is what we got and so yeah I I do find labels like uh quite reductive in some sense because I don't know they don't feel fully encompassing of what I'm actually feeling internally or what have you I feel like identity for me is much more of a cerebral thing Yeah, I think for a lot of people, their identity or identities fluctuate over their lifetime as well. Who you identify as might be different in your teens to your 20s, to your 30s, to your 40s. And that's really normal and natural, you know, as we go through different life stages and different life experiences. But yeah, even though it's a bit of a tricky question to answer because it is so broad, I think it's really important for us to ask this of um, different people because a lot of neurodivergent people and autistic people in particular, particularly when you're in high school in those teenage years, a lot of people have said they don't know who they are. They don't have that sort of sense of identity. I have heard that for some autistic people, it might take a bit longer as well on that sort of journey of um, discovery for yourself to kind of figure out what your sort of solid sense of identity is as an adult. And sometimes like part of that can be finding out if you are neurodivergent or neurotypical. Sometimes those qualifiers give people like that base to go from and then like fluctuate and explore. So yeah, I just think it's fluctuating, but it's really cool to hear, I guess, how different people have come to their sense of identity. I really love colour. I love fashion. Yeah, it's probably like a mini special interest, I guess. And yeah, something that really drew me to your content was like the visual expression side of things and yeah, how you visually express yourself through fashion and clothing. So I really wanted to ask you, how do you use fashion and clothing as a form of identity expression? You know, what makes you get up in the morning and go, I want to look like this today or I want to wear this or do you have any special interests in fashion or do you bring your special interests into fashion for yourself? Yes. Uh, <laughs> you're just like asking me about a very big special interest. Excellent. Yeah, like fashion, I think, has always been one of my primary tools, I guess you could say, of like exploring so many different things. Like it's a very multi-layered special interests in the sense that it encompasses other special interests. I also have always used fashion as a way of exploring special interests within different eras. Like I can kind of trace my life on the different points of like the fashion obsessions that I've had. For instance, like I can I can point to the pinup phase. I can point to the Gothic Lolita phase. 
the goth phase and I've done that my whole life it feels like <laughs> at least definitely from like my early teens actually I would say even before that like I was dressing up like my favorite cartoon characters and things like that uh and that's like another way it crosses over to other special interests is like me trying to emulate uh or mimic shows and characters that I've been obsessed with over time like a very early example of this would be like when I was really obsessed with the Powerpuff Girls uh when I was like maybe nine or ten and I got some scissors and like cut my hair to try and look like Buttercup and I just like cut it diagonally because <laughs> I thought that's how it would work uh which just did not work and my mom was horrified mm. because I had really lovely nice long hair uh, <laughs> 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 i was also obsessed with like card captor sakura back in the day of like cheese tv and stuff and so i took up roller skating and put my hair up the same way as her and i asked my mom to like call me sakura from now on <laughs> forever <laughs> uh but yeah so i've always had an interest in like somehow putting my insides on the outside and I've always found it to be a really reliable way of non-verbally expressing stuff, which has always been much more ideal <laughs> in sort of knowing what I actually like. It's also really not for others uh, as well. It's really like this compulsion in me to like do this. And usually the way I'll kind of formulate um outfits in my brain is kind of like uh the night before i'll be thinking about what i want to wear the next day and it'll be almost like a sims style custom character creation <laughs> in my brain i'm also like hyperphantasic um which is something i've learned about more recently which is like yeah you can see really clearly in your mind's eye like you can visualize things pretty well and conversely the opposite to this is aphantasia where you can't imagine things in your mind's eye but yeah like i think the hyperphantasia has really like lent itself to me conceptualizing all this all these outfits in my brain and i've always like really enjoyed avidly collecting and hunting and gathering all of these like items that i'm like visualizing as well so that's very satisfying for me like i've spent many many hours on etsy doing very specific keyword searches <laughs> for things that i'm visualizing of and i will go through everything <laughs> and uh my favorite yeah watch listy thing you could look at that and just see all of the different phases of like what i'm interested in <laughs> at any given time one thing that really jumped out at me as you were talking, Cynthia, was oftentimes, you know, we talk about how autism presents in girls or assigned female at birth individuals is this idea of young girls often will mimic either, you know, TV characters or friends or whatever. And that's usually held up as a sign of like, oh, this person doesn't really know their own identity and they're trying to put on a mask or slot themselves into something else. I love, though, your description of that because it seems, sounds to me like your experience of that was the opposite, where you're kind of putting on, like dressing up like certain characters, wanting to look like certain characters, even being called certain characters' names was not actually for the purpose of masking it was the opposite. It was a profound and joyful expression of your true identity and your inner self. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's really cool. That's super cool. I wanted to ask too, like for you, do you get sensory processing from fashion? Because I know for me, like I have a particular obsession with the color pink. Um, so if you haven't seen like, you know, my website, my website's hot pink. <laughs> I'm in a, like a hot pink suit. I wear them to conferences, like <laughs> everything. It's just yeah. my color. Um, I get a lot of dopamine and a lot of like, I don't know, like a pick, a real pick me up um, from clothing, fashion, textures, certain looks, colors. 
Um, and the aesthetic environment that I'm in is pretty important to my mood and motivation level. Like we've had jokes at work about if I'm coming in dressed up, it's because I actually need to pick me up. And so it's like, well, if I one day if I come in at work and I'm dressed up in like a full ball gown with um, drag makeup on and like a wig and everything, you'll know that like I'm mentally not okay. <laughs> <laughs> about to have a menti b and like quit um virtually at work people ask me now if i come in dressed really like dressed up they're like are you okay monique that's so <laughs> funny oh my god <laughs> so yeah i wanted to ask is there a sensory aspect for you like visual stimulation you know textural that you get from fashion clothing not just like an identity thing yeah oh yeah definitely <laughs> there is a lot of sensory seeking uh behavior going on there and there's a really cool term that i think really aptly describes what you're describing which is dopamine dressing yes oh my god i love that dopamine yeah, dressing totally because like it is very that there'll be times where i'm trying to like get myself to leave the house <laughs> and also just psych myself up for like the outside world in general there's that sort of adhd thing to have like a separate place to go to to do a specific activity for instance like having a studio it's the the idea of the environment around you like your example of having a studio the external environment is very um cueing for an adhd more so than a non-adhd so it's like if you're in a particular environment or you've got particular external cues then that's going to shift your mindset into that particular way of doing or thinking or being yeah 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 to me it feels very similar to that kind of experience like in the getting ready process it, like you kind of uh putting so much attention to what you want to wear how and how it feels good for you as well on that day and just slowly slowly galvanizing yourself almost until once you are finally ready you're like yeah i'm I'm ready to leave the house now. <laughs> it feels to me like this kind of armor to the world to do that kind of process. Yeah, I 100% um, agree. Like it's almost like a bit of a ritual, I guess, like a ritual or routine to kind of get out of the house and I don't know, a very enjoyable one as well to kind of overcome for some people maybe that inertia of that difficulty of like pushing to leave the house and navigating that transition of getting to wherever it is you need to go, but you're using the dopamine and the special interest to do that. Exactly. Yes. With the term dopamine dressing, um, there's a cool term that, I don't know, somehow came up called peacocking. So you know how like the male peacock sort of has all the feathers and they kind of like show them off and it's to attract people to them because of showing off their finery. I've seen for people who are sort of out there dresses, it's a, it's a way of kind of signaling to other neurodivergent people like, hey, I'm probably or possibly neurodivergent, come over and talk to me. And I actually use this strategy at an ADHD conference that I went to. So I wore my bright pink suit and I was like, oh, I'm really bad at networking and small talk. Please let the ADHDs at this ADHD conference come up to me. I know they're going to be the one to be able to break the ice and then like get a conversation flowing. And it worked. So like literally everyone that came up to me was an ADHD coach or um, an ADHD themselves. And they're like, oh my God, like, I love your pink suit. Like, and it's just the bright color attracted them, um, like bees to honey. And um, this is just my theory, but like a lot of the psychiatrists, whatever, left me alone. <laughs> didn't come up and say hi or anything and I was just like mm. <laughs> that's so funny and that's a real thing I'm you know I've heard that before that dressing a certain way or having your hair dyed a particular color anytime I see someone with purple hair I'm like I want to be your friend <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, because yeah it really is it's like an outward signal and to loop back to our initial questions about identity you were talking Cynthia about some identity uh, signifiers or labels being for the consumption of people around us. And that can be 
you know, we can think of that in a negative way. We're maybe um, trying to placate people around us, but it can also be a positive where it's mm-hmm. like, hey, I'm signaling to you that this is something that I identify as or identify with. Come, like you were saying, Monique, come talk to me if mm-hmm. uh, you're on my vibe. <laughs> yeah. And if you're not on my vibe, like it's okay. Yeah. You, know? yeah, you, can, exactly. you can stick in your own exactly. little group. Like it's all good. But yeah. I know, I know a lot of like minorities throughout history have used signifiers through fashion and clothing. Like I know a lot of queer people in the 17s and 1800s, they would have their own secret language um, of clothing and fashion that you would use to identify who's a safe person to come up and like talk to you or network with you. So I just thought it was, uh, I don't know, a cool thing to bring up in case there are neurodivergent people out there that haven't heard of that term or, you know, it could be actually a good social strategy if you're looking to attract and meet other neurodivergent people. Yeah, absolutely. And like, that's totally kind of what I meant when I said like nonverbal means of communicating with others. It is really powerful in that sense. Visuals to me uh, is probably my most preferred way of communicating. That's just kind of a real-time way of doing that every day. (laughs) And have you found, Cynthia, throughout your life that your kind of fashion and, and fashion expression has functioned in that way where you've maybe met people or formed relationships or networked or whatever and the ignition to that was your external fashion signifier so much <laughs> they love it because yeah it creates like this entry point for me it's and it also just yeah calls the people that are not into those aesthetics or like just not picking up on those vibes and just gets rid of them (laughs) and just like creates a very clear beeline to you. I think one thing that's interesting too is what we were saying about how you can use fashion to mask being neurodivergent, being different. Um, And like when it comes to places like workplaces, it is so much more comfortable to have a workplace where you feel that you can be yourself and that includes dressing how you would like to dress. For example, at my workplace, when I first started, I dressed um, a lot more, I guess, conservatively. And then as the years have gone on and I've become more comfortable and more open about being neurodivergent, yeah, like I will wear my pink stuff and most of my clients are neurodivergent. They actually like are disappointed if I come in wearing black. They're like, where's the pink? Like, my, yeah. my favorite Monique is your velour suit yes. <laughs> it actually it actually gives me dopamine when I see you in that I'm like Aww. oh nice that's nice <laughs> yeah there's a lot of visual stimming stuff going on as well <laughs> with fashion a hundred percent and like I don't know I've got an interest in suits and so I loved some of your um I, I don't know what era they're from particularly, um, like maybe 18th century or 17th century inspired suits that you had on some of your TikToks. Yeah, I thought they were absolutely fabulous. Thanks. Yeah, I, I like dressing like an ancient being. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And, you know, that is something that I guess some autistic people have related to, feeling like they belong to a different era and wanting to dress according to their favourite era. Like I remember really wishing in my 20s that I could dress like a Jane Austen character just every day and just like wanting to wear a bonnet and <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> like yeah. gloves and stuff like that but not knowing how to make those things because I'm not very good at sewing or anything like that yeah <laughs> yeah yeah yep. I feel that <laughs> definitely and just one last thing I'd like to bring up around fashion seeing as we're covering that today another sensory sort of side of things is noticing on days when you are maybe having sensory overload or very stimulated a good point for listeners and I don't know about your experience with this Cynthia but maybe just dressing for sensory comfort is another thing that people often experience and then how to bring your fashion aesthetic if you're into that in into being comfortable yeah i definitely have like a subset of clothing that is very specifically for comfort wear and also the kind of clothes that i would go to when i have like decision fatigue which is also a thing for sure when it comes to like thinking of outfits and also just trying to find something that aligns with you on the day 
in that regard. Sometimes it just doesn't work and I'll experience like might be like gender dysphoria or just feeling like nothing really fits for whatever reason. So yeah, the kind of comfort clothing I wear, I, I have these two gigantic, I guess you could call them like sweater dresses, but whenever I feel like a blob human, like it feels like the perfect thing to wear because it feels like I'm in a bed <laughs> when I'm wearing them. <laughs> so I'm just like bring, bringing the bed to me <laughs> wherever I go. So yeah, it's all about the uh, nothing that's like too tight, nothing that's like too form-fitting, big, oversized, really comfortable textures. I love how you said bringing the, the bed to you wherever you are. That sounds amazing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's what we should all aspire to. <laughs> I've never really been like a big fashion person. I love though hearing about, you know, all these intricacies of fashion and, and all the things that it can actually provide you and the self-expression and the stimming and the sensory stuff. And again, Monique, you and I have talked about this before too, but the whole, your body changes as you get older. And sometimes you go through phases just naturally where you're like, ah, I don't really feel like that way of dressing fits me anymore. fits my identity. And it's actually been quite inspiring hearing you guys talk about fashion in this way. I'm really inspired to go out and buy a suit. <laughs> Amazing, Michelle. I love that. And, you know, something I think is really important too regarding fashion is actually dressing for yourself and your own mm. gaze. And, oh, my you know, God, yes. If you're um, a woman or AFAB, like thinking about how much are you dressing for the male gaze, you know, for the male patriarchal gaze to fit in or look a certain way and are you actually dressing for the female gaze or for your own gaze and it's been really interesting looking at TikToks and and different articles and different people and you can really see the difference between people who dress for the male gaze and people who are dressing for themselves or the female gaze yeah oh my god I I relate to that and agree with that so hard and I think part of my journey, I guess, um, with fashion and where I'm at with it now is, yeah, I think I uh, haven't even considered what my own gaze is up until the last few years, really. I think it's so easy sometimes, particularly if you are cis and you just kind of don't really have some of those uh, deeper questions that a lot of non-binary folks or gender diverse folks have. It's kind of easy just to operate as per the status quo. And so I've dressed for the male gaze. Absolutely. That has been my, in inverted commas, fashion sense, because it's not really my own fashion sense. And it's really been only in the last few years where I've actually actively and intentionally thought about what do I think looks cool? What do I actually like? What makes me feel inspired and happy and makes me feel like I'm presenting, as you were saying, Cynthia, actually expressing or presenting a version of myself that I want to. Brains can get very noisy. I tend to go through phases in what's most helpful in quieting that noise and recentering. And at the moment, I've been gravitating towards music and soundscapes, slowly making my way through a huge library on the Calm app. And I've been trying to get better at having a more peaceful morning routine. And I've definitely found that the morning playlists really help a lot with that, actually. Yeah, I think most people think of meditation as the only way we can ground ourselves and quiet our brain, but sound and music are actually so helpful. What's really cool about the music and sound library on Calm is the variety. They've got playlists for times of the day and certain moods, soundscapes, and even alpha wave and bilateral stimulation tracks, which can be incredibly effective at helping you to emotionally regulate and getting your brain in a sleep-ready state. For sure. My favourites at the moment are the Disney soundscapes. So they've got things like An Evening in Jasmine's Garden, Merida's Mystical Scottish Forest, um, as well as other ones that you'd expect, like Rolling Thunderstorms and the like. The Karma puts the tools that you need to feel better in your back pocket 
If you go to calm.com forward slash neuro, you'll get a special offer of 40% off a Calm premium subscription and new content is added every week. For listeners of the show, Calm is offering an exclusive offer of 40% off a Calm premium subscription at calm.com forward slash neuro. Go to C-A-L-M dot com slash N-E-U-R-O for 40% off unlimited access to Calm's entire library. That's calm.com forward slash neuro. We always ask our guests and, and what our listeners I think often find quite interesting is if you can just talk us through your experiences in childhood and adolescence that you feel like you now look back on and you're like, okay, that was my neurodivergence. Yeah, totally. So as a kid, I would say the most prominent thing that I did looking back (laughs) where like that is very obviously very autistic was just obsessively drawing so much. Um, I would just be sitting at my desk with a giant sheath of loose paper and just drawing, 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 drawing. And I'd be like, making up all these stories I would actually like hold this activity whatever it was stories like I would that's how I would refer to it to my mom whenever I I would talk about it with her back then I'm like yeah I'm gonna go do some stories now um it's basically like creating films it was kind of like real-time storyboarding and so I would like I would really imagine it like it was a film so say there was like an introductory Uh, scene for a character I would like draw the whole character and then I'd already kind of started identifying different cinematic tropes via yeah the media that I'd watched so for instance in this like character intro I would draw a full full character and do like a slow pan from like their feet up to their heads and also um, imagine the music that would be playing during this thing as well and I would also be like humming or like singing that I'd also like talk as the characters as well kind of things I'd be like acting and like role-playing as well (laughs) in this activity um so I did that so much (laughs) so much of my childhood is like sitting at my desk doing that yeah looking back and asking my parents about that I'm just like do you think that was a little bit (laughs) interesting uh they were just like uh, you know it's fine uh, I'm like yeah okay but no one else I know has done that <laughs> so but again it's like so much a thing of like so many things are um, normalized like your lived experience so you don't think of them as special or anything I thought everybody did did that for a really long time <laughs> and I was very surprised when I found out no one else did yeah, I think um, the whole world building thing that you're describing there, and world building doesn't really sum up everything that that you've you've described there as your kind of pastime, but that kind of super rich internal fantasy world, story creation world, I hear that all the time in autistic children. This it's so common for autistic children to have this like incredibly rich internal fantasy world and autistic people who are talented artistically who can then you know draw and create and actually manifest those things. Yeah, often have a similar story to you. So yeah, that's really interesting. So yeah, that's definitely what I think about for my childhood and then for my teenage years they were like super tumultuous and looking back, I can really see how much ADHD and autism really played out in those scenarios. But like trying to logic them without that neurodivergent lens was just very abstract and confusing. And I, looking back on those times specifically, I'm like, wow, it would have been really great to have had that lens for everyone involved, <laughs> like me and my parents who were I had to live with and yeah we were all navigating that together. So Cynthia when you say your teen years were quite tumultuous did you experience that with school with friends with family? I would say specifically like my schooling and my family life content warning 
for eating disorder things. Yeah, I had pretty severe anorexia for a few of those years. And looking back on those years specifically and like my logic around anorexia, it was very much informed by this, you know, wanting to control something in my environment and feeling like I had no control aside from my body pretty much and living in my parents house I was just like I want to be free of <laughs> any authority basically and so yeah it was very very stressful on them uh, as in my parents obviously during that kind of time to figure out why the hell I was acting this way they they kind of are a bit religious so they really took the uh, demonizing of mental illness thing and uh, had a very light exorcism. Uh, <laughs> um, so no, not to trivialize that, but what what does a light exorcism <laughs> entail? Oh, it, it, is, it is funny. Uh, like, I, yeah, exorcism light. Uh, yes. I'm guessing it didn't work. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's worked very well. <laughs> All of the demons have escaped me. Yeah. Um, right. Yeah. No. Um, <laughs> it's something that it was an event that, like, in my mind, you know how it, there's certain events that are just so outside of, like, your general routine of things that almost seem, like, so surreal. Like, you're like, did that even actually happen? That seems very odd and out of place. But then I kind of, like, remembered it retroactively, and I just sort of asked my mom about it in the past couple of years, actually. I was like, did that happen? And <laughs> did you all get me exercised, perchance? <laughs> and she was like, look, yes. <laughs> I was like, okay, tell me more about that. I do actually wonder how many neurodivergent people growing up in different religious backgrounds have undergone that experience, actually. Mm. Especially yeah. historically. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, it's such a huge thing of disability and mental illness over time, how it's been perceived in that sense, like <laughs> uh, very much demonized. And like the whole thing about you know, changelings and not being human and not being a monster and all of this. Something over time. So I can understand my parents' approach uh, to this uh, stuff, but it is hilarious to me in certain ways. <laughs> that is that is wild, Cynthia. You have to be the first guest that we've ever had on that's undergone, as you put it, a light exorcism. <laughs> Also to clarify why I say light, it was just like it felt very civil, like the whole thing, <laughs> like <laughs> matter of fact about it, and yeah, <laughs> just a light sprinkling of holy water. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a little tipple. <laughs> oh my goodness! Okay, well. Um, thank you for clarifying what you mean by tumultuous. I think we've got a better understanding now. Did you feel as well that as you got older in your teen years, your relationship with your parents and how they were handling some of the mental health stuff going on improved or was it not until you became an adult and, and moved out and then reformed an adult relationship with them? It became a thing where I was like, I have to leave. And then I did run away from home in like when I was 17. It was like my last year of high school. But I also wanted to like, I wanted to fix the relationship with my parents, but it felt impossible to do that living with them. And so I, yeah, ran away with my boyfriend at the time. And I would just kind of visit my parents during the year that proceeded after that. And that slowly fixed things. And it it is very strange in my memory that those kind of times but I do remember that's kind of how it was I did just kind of visit them again and then went back and lived with them at some point I was just wondering when you have gotten your diagnosis of the autism and ADHD did that provide a different lens for your parents to understand you through and did that have any impact on your relationship with them yeah, it's been something that we've been talking about for the past two years specifically and just talking to them and being like, yeah, 
this stuff. <laughs> uh, what do you think about all this stuff? <laughs> uh, and my dad is still very much like, no, you don't have, you don't have, you're not autistic. No, 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 no. And I'm like, what about all that stuff with the drawing? Dad, do you think that's, do you think that's <laughs> anything? Uh, and he is very much, yeah, in denial about it. And I think, I think it's slowly changing. A big sort of development of that recently was um, the speech that uh, that comedian M. Rossiano. M. M. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. So I like sent that to my dad, and I was like, "Hey, check this biz out because this is very much. I mean, this is speaking to a lot of my experience as well." And then, yeah, that was actually the first time I feel like he really heard it maybe in a different way because he kind of like replied and was like you know I cried watching that speech and it was like I wish I could have actually done more for you growing up and I was like whoa that's pretty big that's yeah definitely the biggest thing he said in that kind of regard that's huge yeah 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 and I was so thankful that that existed I think it is very much that thing like uh, my dad he doesn't know anything about that stuff and like fair enough i didn't know anything about that stuff either until i went massive deep dive looking for it and culturally as well mauritians don't really want to engage with mental healthy stuff uh, or anything in that kind of sphere why do you think that is i don't know i think it could be a mix of this sense of like trying to assimilate and like the immigrant experience in that regard because it's like my parents are immigrants so you know trying to assimilate themselves like my dad's always had this fear of me being different so that's a, been a reason as to like why we've butted heads so much because i've always been <laughs> the way that i am and dressing how i want to dress and all of this kind of stuff so when i was like a teenager dressing in like goth boots and like victorian dresses in far north queensland <laughs> my dad was like why do you do this <laughs> but Looking back, I'm just like, I feel he was, it's just a genuine fear of me standing out negatively. Because like, to him, that is unsafe. Don't do that. <laughs> and that's fair enough. Yeah, I think I think that's a great point. And I love that M. Roscano's speech was so impactful. And this is one of the reasons why, yeah, I think both Monique and I feel that it's so important to hear people's stories. Because that's how you actually get changed, actual human stories. Totally. That's kind of like what's informing uh, what I'm trying to do at the moment, which is like make comics around my early experiences in that sense. And also like to show more internally what is happening because I feel like, I don't know, people know all these labels and stuff, but they can't really see what is the internal workings of those experiences, really. Being able to like have all those things visually represented is super important in terms of like empathy building uh as well um and also like the sort of seeing disabled people as like non-human when you just like have this sort of preset in your mind as to what that is of their experience or whatever because it's so invisible yeah that sounds amazing is there anywhere that we can like are they on your do you have, like have you published them yet is i'd love to see them <laughs> is there anywhere we can see them no. Okay. <laughs> Not yet. Okay. Not yet. Uh, yeah. It's been a. Um, <laughs> it's uh. It's been one of these things where I'm like, it's it's uh. It's kind of like my big bad of executive dysfunction at the moment. So it's uh. But it's the thing I want to do the most, and that's why I have so much like internal resistance in various ways, but. I have so many bits now <laughs> that I just kind of need to put them all together. Well, when when they're available, please let us know and we'll link it on our socials because I think, yeah, I think so many people would be so interested in seeing that. Minnie and I have talked before on the podcast about, you know, the importance of interest and passion as such a key driving force um, and key motivator, I guess, for neurodivergent folks. And you definitely seem, Cynthia, like someone who, um, at least from the outside, seems to be living a life 
just absolutely infused with passions. I'd love to hear your perspective on this and particularly what role do you think interest and passion plays in your life and in your work and your creativity? Is it something that's essential to you? Is it a nice to have but not necessary? I'd love to hear your take on that. Yeah, I think that I am always trying to follow my interests in that way. Um, like I kind of uh, am pretty existential, I would say, where I really uh, am like, well, what is the point of living if I'm not doing the thing that I am interested in uh, or that is like feeding my curiosity in some sense? And I have a lot of different interests, like in terms of making music and drawing and performing. And sometimes it's kind of like, I don't know where to put my energy exactly, because there's so many things I want to do all the time. But I'm trying to reconnect with my internal guidance systems, because I know that if I can just listen to myself in the moment, all of the time I can tap into that flow state where I'm not really like having to plan necessarily what I'm going to do it's more like it just kind of seeps all into each other continually and that's kind of yeah how it felt when I was in prolonged lockdowns especially it was the first time I could really be completely not distracted by anything and just like keep going in that way uh so like okay i'm pulled to music i'm gonna like do music things now okay i want to play video games now i'm gonna do this okay i'm gonna rest for like a really long time <laughs> and like that'd be okay i really want to be able to do all the things um but i only have so much time and energy as well and I i'm definitely experiencing like autistic burnout right now so it's kind of like trying to balance yeah, to me, it sounds like um, you've brought a lot of um, your visual interests and skills into different areas of your life. Like um, I know from looking at your TikTok channel that, yeah, you do a lot of work that is art-based. Um, like I've, I think you're a tattoo artist as well as all the other things that you mentioned. Yeah, so I, I don't know. I think it's really cool that you've been that you've brought a lot of your interests into, you know, different areas in your life. But sometimes it's hard, you know, if you have both autism and ADHD because, you know, the ADHD just wants to do everything. It's like that Ferrari that wants to press on the gas pedal and go vroom. And then the autism's like, no, pump the brakes. I'm exhausted. <laughs> you what have been some of your strengths and challenges across your personal life your professional life that you feel have come with being neurodivergent and multiply neurodivergent being a tattooer uh for the past nine years now um retroactively looking back on my very early tattoo years with the lens of neurodivergence that i have now I'm just like, wow, okay, I was uh, putting myself in a lot of sensorially overwhelming environments and like, you know, meeting new people all the time and uh, touching bodies, lots of bodies, shaving them, sanitizing them, inking them. There's many sort of paradoxical things that definitely go against like my autistic traits, but I never perceived them in that way, of course. And so now, and now I'm like uh, experiencing this burnout that has kind of eventuated, especially after lockdown times and going back to front facing tattoo stuff. It's been like, okay, something's really got to give here. So I've changed a lot of things in terms of like, my environment, like I've instead of tattooing in spaces where I'm like in a big room, uh, tattooing with a whole bunch of people, which is what I did for like five years, uh, which is why I think I'm like so burned out now, to be honest. Now I'm tattooing in like an enclosed room and I'm really trying to facilitate a space 
for other neurodivergent folks. So trying to have as much control in that kind of environment, which is really difficult to do. Like tattooing as an industry is pretty fucking ableist, if I do say so myself. And there's only so much you can kind of control within like a studio setting. In the past two years, especially just trying to like approach tattooing with this new lens um, as to like how do I create a functional environment for myself as well as others? What do I kind of need to just be really explicit about uh, that would actually make this environment more accessible? Um, like an example of this is kind of the social aspect of the entire experience. Cause like, I know a lot of neurodivergent folks that wouldn't get a tattoo because they're really petrified of the social aspects of that entire experience. Cause like, where am I? What is, what's happening? Where am I? Also, do I have to talk to this person for like hours? That sounds terrible. I don't want to do that which is really fair. Um, oh, my God. Even even I struggle with that. When I go and get tattoos, I'm like, oh, I hope we can just sit inside. <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. And it's like that hairdresser fear as well. It's like, oh, God, I don't want to get my hair cut because I don't want to talk to this person. Um, which, yeah, uh, like I think that's a really valid concern. And I've never seen a tattooer really talk about that at all and most of the time i think most of them just mask the shit out of the, the entire experience <laughs> and just like burn themselves out that way which is something i did at the very least especially if you're in an environment where everyone is doing that and everyone's holding themselves to that same social standard and like that is also conflated with like professionalism like whether or not <laughs> your ability to be uh social and entertaining and all of this and do your job at the same time which is, yeah, what a tattooer kind of does. Like they juggle all of these different jobs. It's not just tattooing. It's like holding space for the client in like hopefully a trauma-informed way. Uh, it's also being entertaining and personable enough to actually put them at ease. It's being able to actually speak uh, and create informed consent around various things. There's a lot of different hats and um, I... I'm just like figuring out how I can actually serve neuroqueer communities within my capacity and also what that even looks like because I've never, again, seen stuff uh, about neuroqueer tattooing. So I'm really trying to like focus on creating like tangible resources in that regard to share around with other neurodivergent tattooers wherever they are. Um, because I do think it's also a stigmatized thing to be very vocal about if you're autistic. It's interesting though, because I feel like to me, the tattoo industry would be absolutely chockers with yeah. neurodivergent yeah. people. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Uh yeah, like whether they know it or not, but yeah, so many people I've worked with, I'm like, okay. Uh yep. <laughs> but yeah, so how do we create a culture that is more, uh, you know, not burning ourselves out completely and create, yeah, better environments for people to get tattoos? Yeah, I love that idea because I've heard of, um, you know, no-talk hairdressing salons or barbershops, barber but I've never heard of a neuroqueer, safe and friendly tattoo shop. That would be amazing. Yeah, like at the moment, I'm kind of just putting it in my booking info that I send out to everyone. And I'll like specifically be like, I will not see you as rude if you do not talk during this session. <laughs> and I hope that you extend me the same courtesy. I just want us to both be comfortable. <laughs> that sounds delightful. They've just been like, hey, that thing that you wrote about that, that was really great. Because <laughs> I've always been really afraid and what is i have no idea what's expected here and i really don't want to come off as rude and all of this and i'm like i know i know <laughs> it's a lot of social expectation and also you have no idea how i perceive of the situation so i'm just gonna let you know from the get-go and that's really all you can do in that kind of situation you just need to be explicit 
about it and then it's fine. <laughs> yeah, so it sounds like, you know, through some of the challenges you've experienced, you know, including autistic burnout um, from your profession, basically, it sounds like it's enabled you to actually figure out what works for you. Um, and even like create, create a new way of doing things, which sounds really awesome. Yeah, totally. I think there's still a lot more to explore in that regard. And also like how tattoos can facilitate empowerment for neurodivergent folks as well. So um, just to wrap things up, Cynthia, what would be your key top tip or top tips for others who may relate to your story? I would say try to find a means to express yourself through your unmasking process. That's pretty abstract, (laughs) but uh, I would definitely say the unmasking process is like pretty hectic. And I think finding a creative means amidst that is very helpful. (laughs) Yeah, I I think that's a great tip because we often get asked about, um, you know, specifically about like, what are some tips for going through that unmasking process, particularly for individuals diagnosed in adulthood? And I really love that suggestion of potentially rather than focusing on the unmasking or, or, you know, focusing on, okay, how do I stop doing this thing? How do I stop masking? Flipping your focus to how can I actually focus on expressing my true self? If, if that makes sense, it's kind of rather than focusing on taking something away, you're focusing on, you know, what can I actually do to kind of express my identity and express myself creatively? Yeah, exactly. I've been doing um, IFS therapy as well, which I would really recommend for autistic babes. A lot of my other friends that are autistic swear by it as well. And like creating art from that experience has been really cool. Yeah, I'm a big fan of IFS, internal family systems therapy. Yeah, yeah. it's really awesome. And one thing that my therapist has been encouraging me to do is like to honor the different parts that we've been identifying and um, I feel you can kind of do this with like masks that you identify as well. For instance, for me, I've just drawn them in different ways. I, I like that in the sense of often what is talked about in IFS is when you identify those different parts, it's not about demonizing them or saying, you know, how terrible they are. Those parts are part of you for a reason. They were there to keep you safe for some, you know, some experience or some stage of your life. And I love what you're saying there, Cynthia, about you can do that for all the different masks you wear rather than thinking, you know, oh, this is terrible. I need to get rid of this. Figuring out what purpose did this serve? How can I thank this thing that this functional thing that came up for me that I no longer need anymore, but I don't have to be angry or mad or, um, yeah, demonize it. Yeah, totally. Getting mad at yourself when you do perceive yourself as masking, which is something that I've done. And, you know, I get really mad at myself and create like shame spirals and things like this. And, and then I'm just like, this isn't helping anybody. (laughs) And also, this mask was probably created as a means of survival in some ways. So I should really like give myself a break. <laughs> and um, I also don't think it's possible to just unmask completely. Like, I think it's all kind of enmeshed. It's not about eliminating the masks and like becoming completely, completely unmasked or whatever that looks like. Cause yeah, I also don't think it's possible to <laughs> fully unmask in that sense. Yeah, I I think that you're spot on um, because everyone has these sort of personas, so to speak, or forms of masks that ways that we present ourselves in different situations. Some people so much so that it's non-functional and that's all, you know, it's it's damaging to your sense of self, it's damaging to your identity, um, it's harmful to you. But exactly as you say, Cynthia, trying to get to that place of, okay, I, I want to be completely unmasked all the time. 
yeah, I, I think that's not possible. That's not how humans operate. And it's not totally functional either, because sometimes we do just need to slightly adjust how we're presenting ourselves or interacting. And that's really normal. And yeah, I love yeah that whole idea of how instead can you focus on expressing yourself more authentically? Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Cynthia, for coming on the podcast. We love chatting with you and really, um, yeah, going through all these different topics. Uh, It's been really awesome. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It's been amazing. And um, I'll send you a picture of my suit (laughs) 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 when I get it. (laughs) Yeah. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support us further, you can do so by subscribing to our Patreon. To become part of our Patreon community, you can buy us a coffee for $5 per month or a wine for $10 per month. All of our Patreon subscribers receive access to a backlog of exclusive content and to a monthly live Zoom hangout with us and our Patreon community. Our Zoom hangouts are a place to ask questions, chat about your experiences, and connect with other neurodivergent women. From this season onward, all Patreons will also receive basic episode transcripts released each week after our episode airs. Patreons shouting us to a monthly wine get all that plus one exclusive content post per month. We really appreciate your support as we aim to make quality mental health information accessible to everyone. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Neurodivergent Woman podcast. If you have a question or would like to contact us, you can do so through our Facebook and Instagram at the handle The Neurodivergent Woman Podcast or our website, ndwomanpod.com. You can also email us directly at ndwomanpod at gmail.com. Bye for now.